Hi, welcome to Star Trek Day here on Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. Today is Star Trek's 57th birthday, and I'm celebrating with a series of podcast specials I've produced that have my experience dealing with some of these amazing, talented people that make Star Trek and continue to make it. You know, it's great when their other series can kind of delve deeper into different races. And Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine dove head into the Klingons and their evolution. Here is Dr. Mark Oakwin, who developed the language of Klingon, Michael Dorn, Worf, of course, Robert O'Reilly, Gowron himself, and J.G. Hertzler, General Martok, on the evolution of those uh, turtle heads as... Uh, <laughs> as Jonathan Brakes referred them to, the Klingons. At the time, all we knew about Klingons was what we saw in the original series. And the Klingons, so they, they were kind of the, the most popular villains in the original series. Uh, but they were really featured as, as, as major plot elements in three, maybe four episodes, no more than that. Uh, so they weren't, in, they weren't in all over the place. Uh, yeah. uh, but they became the most popular ones anyway. So we knew about uh, how they behaved in the original series, and I knew how they behaved in the script for Star Trek III, but that's all we knew. And what we know, what we knew was Klingons are mean and tough and warlike and awful and despicable. So I wanted to be, we, we've learned better since then, but yeah. that was at the time. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that the Klingon language that I developed did not resemble any Earth language because save if by accident it resembled Thai, then I've got all the people in Thailand upset with me for, you know, using the, their language as a model for these, the language of these bad guys. Yeah. Okay, so I, so I tried very hard not to make it sound like anything in particular. Now, having said that, you can't help but be influenced by what you know. Uh, although we didn't have major discussions about it, Gene, Gene allowed me to create uh, the Wharf character any way I wanted to. And so what I did was I took, um, uh, we had to do a different voice, number one, because the voice was too human-like, you know, originally, although deep. And so I just took it and made it um, English, you know, made him a really eloquent, you know, instead of saying, uh, we can't, you know, I say we cannot, you know, and, and make it very stilted and very, uh, very eloquent. So, um, and also the same with the fighting sequences. You know, originally it was like uh, screaming and yelling and, and hitting with two hands and, you know, just really kind of wild stuff. And I, and I went to one of the special effects supervisors on our show who was a martial arts expert. And I said, look, you know, I want to change this all around. Let's do something that is, that is violent, but uh, almost like martial arts like. You know, so every move is, is, is choreographed and it is, it is every, if you make a move, you're getting prepared for the next move. And so it looks real, um, um, you know, like, like a dance, you know, except they can rip your throat out, you know, or something. And so that's, that's what, that was my whole point is to, is to, um, change the Klingon so they weren't just, you know, these wild guys and, and made them a little different. Actually, I thought I was pretty heroic figure uh, because I was coming from a family, a Klingon family that was sort of outside the realm. They were right. of royalty, but the, the way that the description was is that I was not an acceptable sort of person for and how I became 
this battle with with the other Klingon uh, mm-hmm. to take over was never actually explained. Then when, once I did take over and get it, then when Michael Dorn was moved over to Deep Space Nine, I knew I was probably going to do one of two things, be killed off <laughs> or get transferred over. And, and once I got transferred over, I, I knew exactly what was going to occur. I would become, you know, the enemy uh, to some way or, or degree, or uh, they needed people to fight, to give action to the show. And I was a natural. Now, what was interesting is they made me a, a political figure and not just, I, I figured if I was going to fight, I'd probably only last the season. So the alternative was to become political and, and they did that to me and I lasted the full run of, of Deep Space Nine, which was excellent in my own opinion. In Soldiers of the Empire, which was directed by LeVar Burton, Martok was presented as a, a man who has lost his courage, lost his nerve, a Klingon that's lost his oh, courage. Yeah. Disrespected. His ship was disrespected. It was Phil, it was, he was like the, the uh, if there was a, like a, a cursed ship in the Navy, that was it. Mm. Uh his his ship and and, and the the uh, the Klingon crew hated themselves, hated the ship, hated him. And uh, Worf came on, and Jadzia also. But Worf put me in a position where I could actually behave in such a way as to overcome my fear. Worf's character after and he did it, and I and I did overcome my fear of the Jem'Hadar, and. Uh, at the end, we I welcome I make him part of House Martok, so right. he was part he was part son, part brother. That was the most uh, that was probably the most emotionally fulfilling episode mm-hmm. I ever got a chance to do because it really pushed Martok to his emotional ends about being a, a uh, when all is said and done being a coward, being afraid. Yeah. Um, there are things I would uh, I would undertake now, except as John, uh, except that I you know there are too many people involved and there's too much chance of chance of failure. Mm-hmm. But, but I would love to be able to do it. It's uh, anyway. Worf provided Martok with that possibility. There's more Star Trek Day on Sci-Fi Talk, so stay tuned. A talented actor that we lost too soon was Rene Auvergnois. And here he talks about playing the shape-shifting Odo in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It's like playing any other character except that at a certain point you melt and you become jello and you run all over the place and then you become something else. And when it, when I become something else, it's obviously not really me. It's done with like special effects. And uh, so that like one, one show I had to turn into a rat. And so I... I didn't have to come into work the day the rat worked. and uh, But when I came in the next day, everybody said, oh, you were great yesterday. You did really well. But actually, all they were doing were filming the rat running around. So um, it's really not that different from playing any any character. You just... Uh, he's uh, He becomes very uh, real to me. And 
so I don't even think about it. I do a different voice for Odo, but I don't do that voice. Like right now, I'm not talking in that voice. I don't know if you know, you know Odo. Odo has a sort of a gruff voice like that. But I, I find it difficult to do his voice when I'm not in my makeup. An interesting relationship took place on the DS9 between Andy Robinson's Garrick and Alexander Siddiq's Dr. Bashir. Here, the two actors comment on that interesting relationship. I think Garak represented for Bashir all the things that Bashir was most romantically seduced by when he went to the station, for example, the whole uh, concept of adventure and, uh, you know, the, the idea that he might be a spy and that, the, I mean, he's like, it's terrific. It's like you meet nowadays, you mean, go into a party, go to a party and you meet someone and you find out they're from the CIA, you go, wow, oh my God, I've got to find out, maybe this is going to be a terrific adventure, they're going to begin, they're going to give me a mission in the next couple of days. So I think Bashir quite likes that idea that he might get involved with the whole spy thing. <laughs> Thankfully, it was just, it was just some great casting page we got on really well and uh, the relationship became a really good one and I think it's one of the great relationships in Star Trek the first time I, you, that you and Citadel Fadil's character sat down in the kiosk and started talking where you sort of approached him uh, there was something there was a magic that sort of hit oh, I love that moment I mean I really and I, I gotta tell you because that was the very the very first scene of that episode was the, uh, the it was the very first scene that we shot and the moment we shot the master of that scene, I knew that this was a relationship that was going to continue because they tell you these things when you audition for something. They say this may be a recurring character, but of course they wait and find out if there's any indeed chemistry between you and uh, Sadig. And the moment, the first moment we started working in that scene, I knew that Sid and I were a match, and and that we had so much fun with that. I mean, you know, the the whole thing of my putting my hand on, on his shoulder and, and, and Sid's wonderful reaction at that point. Is this guy coming on to me? What's going on here? And yet, his fascination with this character, because this character may be a spy, because he's the only Cardassian, Cardassian on the space station. And so, what's his agenda? And so, the doctor's sort of getting sucked into that. And Garrick, it turns out, of course, Garrick, using the doctor for his agenda, you know, certainly would like a Federation officer that he's close to uh, for information and whatever, but also, as we find out, to have some company because it turns out that Garrick is a very lonely man, uh, being the only Cardassian, and you know, and of course the Cardassians being as hated as they are on that station. So it's it, it starts out the relationship has, for, I think, uh, for both parties, there are complicated reasons for for them getting together, to, for, you know, for their attraction, and then the 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 evolution of that relationship through the episode The Wire where it, it, be, it becomes well it becomes a real friendship that, that was an excellent uh, you know, it's what they call the addiction episode and the withdrawal scenes were absolutely that was probably some of the most intense drama I've seen on Star Trek in quite a while yeah. it's some of the finest acting I've ever been involved with it's uh, and I mean this you know if somebody had told me you know uh, 20 years ago or 5 years ago even that I was going to play this guy in a rubber suit and a rubber mask and I was not only going to love playing it but I was also going to do some of the best work of my career I would have told them that they're they're smoking bad stuff or something More Star Trek audio treats to come I didn't like the Ferengi at first but the person as I tell him in the interview that brought it home for me was Armin Shimmerman and his cork There's more to this guy than just on the surface and profit and, and latinum. And 
just the way you developed him over the years and the writers hooked into your talents. And uh, and it's like, oh, OK, I'm on board with them now because of Quark. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I, many people may not agree with me, but I always thought that uh, Quark and the Ferengi were the most human of characters on Star Trek. Um, they they suffered from foibles. Absolutely. But but they also had uh, fortes as well. And and that mix, I think, made them more human than some of the other people, not just the aliens, but the humans as well. I also liked that he was like my anchor. It's like everything could be going around it with other Ferengi and all the different things that happened. But it was like Quark kind of centered it for me. You know, he was like, oh, OK, well, Quark is there. So I can kind of, you know, I can kind of get into the other stuff, too. But I know he's there. I know what he's made of. And I'm going to go along with the rest of the story because of him. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, the trick to creating a three-dimensional character is to have a great deal of reality about you. And so uh, thanks to the writers, thanks to the directors, thanks to the designers, thanks to the other actors, uh, I was able to always find that reality, play that reality, and maybe that attracted you because that, those original Ferengi uh, were not real and they, mm -hmm. and they, and they were rather one-dimensional. And uh, once again, I apologize for that. <laughs> the only thing I miss is that those things that they would fling out, those, oh, yeah, those disappeared after that episode. They never used those again. They, they gave me those the foam rubber painted blue and said, make it look lethal. And I went, you got to be kidding. And, um, <laughs> We did our best. And, and then they put us in, in, in costumes that were laughable. And the makeup itself is laughable. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that didn't help either. So what we tried to do, the, the core Ferengi group, we tried to make them as real and as human and uh, as sympathetic as we possibly could. Mm -hmm. If I have a favorite, I have to say Little Green Man was a great yeah. episode. That was a lot of fun to watch. Thank you. It was a great fun to do as well. Um, and we actually, it's the only episode I think that I know of where uh, the Ferengi speak Ferengi. Yes, uh, that's right. <laughs> which we made up on the spot as the camera was rolling. Get out. That's funny. Along with Deep Space Nine, we also got Star Trek Voyager. This was an interesting premise where a ship was lost in a different quadrant of space and they couldn't actually get home or reach Starfleet. They picked up a few people along the way, including Neelix, played wonderfully by Ethan Phillips. And he talked to me and Ernest Lilly about keeping Neelix alive. How much of him is you and how much of it was written down? I mean, the little nuances and things like that, is that a lot of what you put into it? Um, well, uh, yeah, the, the only thing we really have in common, Neelix and I, is our, actually our left elbow and part of my lower colon. Other than that, we uh, are totally different. I um, no everything. Everything you see is put in digitally by the uh, computer people. I do nothing. Um, I uh, no. I no. I, I the writers. The writers write, and then I, as an actor, try to um, make it uh, um, uh, you know alive. Um, and uh, so all the uh, the stuff you see is 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 besides the words is me. I hope you know. And uh, if I go off the track, the director. 
um, steers me back on, you know. Sometimes I, I tend to be, uh, you know, my background's in farce and Moliere and Fedot, and I, I tend to be way big, so they're always bringing me back. But I always say it's easier to bring you back than ask you to do more, so. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, thing that you're doing for people who don't look as godlike as many of the TV characters, although out of makeup you're devastatingly handsome. As Neelix, you're <laughs> slightly challenged, but still you've got the best-looking babe on the show. <laughs> I, I'm very lucky uh, to finally, in, in after 25 years of acting, to, to get the babe. Unfortunately, I'm wearing four pounds of rubber, but uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I do have the babe, which, uh, but I think, you know, very few people know that Neelix was a swimsuit model on his planet, and uh, that's the uncommon knowledge. Uh, well, you, have, you get the babe in the show, but unfortunately, she has a short lifespan. <laughs> yeah, but that makes it so bittersweet, you know, the fact that she's going to be gone in six years. She's, I think, she's two years old, but, you know, she's got the body of a one-year-old. I really, uh, I feel that. She, um, she's an incredible actress, so very uh, unguarded, uh, raw, present person to perform with. I love working with her. Yeah. This is also a very good cast, too. It's, it's a great cast. It's a great cast. Everybody is uh, has a background in theater, and uh, you know they, they really went on a lengthy, lengthy uh, look. See. To, cast this show, and I think they got the best they, they, of everybody. They're all terrific. I have some problems with Tim Russ, but um, no, I'm kidding, Tim, in case you hear this. <laughs> Tim Russ played the Vulcan Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager. Really, the difference between him and Spock is that he was a full Vulcan, he was married, and even had children. Pivotal episode for him was Endgame, where we see Tuvok in a very bad place. I just recently watched uh, the final episode again, Endgame, and um, man, just the uh, the scenes where Janeway goes to visit him, and you just, that was just an amazing portrayal. It just resonates all these years later. It, it was, I'm sure it wasn't easy but uh, to play him in that way, but man, that was such an amazing scene. Yeah, we had a couple of uh, scenes uh, in, in that piece that were... Uh, you know, pretty. I mean, I when I and but yeah, when I got the script, I had to figure out what I was going to do as far yeah. as this type of uh, dementia that's affected this character and what the state of his you know uh, condition was and how we were going to play that uh, because we've never seen it. Uh, yeah. Nobody's ever seen that in in terms of any prior episodes of of, of any of the Trek series. Nobody knew what that looked like. So, you know, we worked on how this would affect him and how he would be. And, um, and we got, uh, we got it to work pretty well. Um, yeah. and I think there was a couple of scenes. I think there was one in sick bay or something like that also. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty crazy. That was some crazy stuff. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> we, we had some fun. I remember that. I, I, I don't remember a whole lot about, you know, shooting the show. Honestly, at this point, I don't remember. Sure. Even as I watch, if I've watched an episode or seen a piece of it, I can't remember what state of mind I was in at the time. But I do remember those two scenes. I remember the scene in Sick Bay. I remember how we shot it. I remember the process that day of how we were going to shoot it because there was a, I can't remember who was directing at the time, but there was a plan. There was a plan initially to shoot in a certain way. And then we decided um, or suggested, I don't know if it was myself or if it was myself and the DP, uh, Marvin, I think was shooting, he was holding the camera, decided not mm -hmm. to, sh to shoot it a completely different way. We decided to just throw it, he decided to throw it on his shoulder and just shoot the whole thing handheld. Yeah. Shot. 
I remember that's that. Exactly, yeah. That's exactly what we did. So we, I remember that day. I, I still remember that day. Uh, it, was a very, it was a very dynamic moment doing it that way rather than the way that he had planned to do it. And, uh, and then the one in the quarters where she comes to visit where he's, you know, scrawling on the floor or whatever it was. Um, yeah. There is also that we shot the way it was planned to be shot. And it was, uh, those two scenes really, uh, rocked back and forth between the way that they, they were, they were filmed and the way that we played them, uh, really made a difference. It was, that was, that was an interesting, I can still remember these, those, those two scenes. And there's a whole bunch of scenes I do not remember because I just, because there were so many and, um, and I've forgotten them by now, but that, but those were those actual days. And yeah. the reason, the reason I had to play it that way, uh, that, and I think the other episode I had to play when the character was blind. So I had to, that's right. I had to do some research on how to, how to play someone that was blind. So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. More details about Star Trek. You may or may not know about. There's a wonderful deleted scene in the last season of Star Trek Picard where Worf reveals what happened to him after the Dominion War to Riker. Michael Dorn gives a poignant performance as he explains how he found the path to pacifism. It's on the Picard Season 3 DVD. Some, you know, you hate to see anything cut, especially a wonderful scene like this, but I can understand why they did it. you got to stay tuned. There's a lot more to come on Star Trek Day here on Sci-Fi Talk. This is Tony Tolado.